Hey everyone, before we open today's file, please make sure to follow us on Instagram at d.s.radio where you can find all the images that go along with today's case. You can drop us an email at contact.dsradio at gmail.com. You can find all of our socials in the Linktree bio on our Instagram profile, including links to merch. If you're feeling especially generous, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dystopian simulation radio, where you can get access to our exclusive Instagram page and make suggestions for upcoming episode topics that you would like us to cover. Speaking of Patreon, thanks to our Patreons, Riff Cult, Cropley Crab, Cash Broadus, Raspberry Jr., Jason R. Nelson, Creepy Paper, Jamie Suit, Michael Laughlin, Lindsay Keller, Mike Wright, Gria Weaver, Kelsey Carithers, Linz Gibbon, Drake Holvig, Only Child, Michael M, Wesley Akers, Riaz K, Emily Medeiros, Pip, Heather Wynn, Graves, Devin Sweatshirt, The Ordained Sinister Minister, and Philip Hoffman. Hi everybody and welcome to Dystopian Simulation Radio. My name's Chris. I'm Linz. And welcome everybody to our show today and especially we'd like to welcome all of you Generation Wires. Is that are you yeah. saying? What Gen- um, Wires? Yeah, why not? It's- I don't know what they call their um I don't want to say fan base, <laughs> but uh <laughs> I don't know what they call their audience for them. Um, Gen Wires, let's go with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Justin and Erin were kind enough to promote our show um, in the last episode, or maybe the episode before by the time you hear this, but um, yeah, and we have a lot of new people coming our way, so hello to all the new listeners. By the way, if you don't know, um, I blog for The Generation Y every Tuesday at genypod.com, and I also research for them, so that's the connection, if you're wondering. I mean, it's so cool of them to do that. We had no idea that that was coming. And then we were just kind of like looking just normally at our stats. And we were like... <laughs> just checking them just by like, the minute, yeah. by the hour. But no, I'm kidding. <laughs> just like, what the fuck is going on with these stats right now? So, yeah. I mean, we even charted in Chartable for the first time ever. And we were like, what is happening? We're I, getting emails from our like podcast hosts saying, oh, you've reached this many listens. And we were like... Have we? Have we? <laughs> we, we? I think we've reached a professional peak where we hit number 69 on the true crime charts hey. in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> to everybody who uh, is, is coming over from Gen Y, thank you so much for listening. We'd really like to encourage you to stick around. So if you wouldn't mind following us on, on Instagram at d.s.radio. You can also follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, whatever it is you listen 
to our uh, podcast via. And hey, if you like us, rate us five stars. And if you don't, keep it to yourself. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. So this episode uh, has a bit of a, a history behind it, as in we actually had an episode all ready to go on a completely different topic. And when I went to edit it, it wasn't there. Yeah, we had a, a, a mini meltdown Mm. considering we just got a lot of new followers from Gen Y and then we lose the episode that's supposed to come out on Monday. So um, we're recording this um, across the internet, which we don't usually do. We're normally in the same room and I'm actually in the south of Sweden and Chris is in the UK. So I had to order in this uh, Yeti mic and here we are trying to give you Monday's episode. But that's our dedication to this. But you know, every cloud has a, have a, has a silver lining and it means that we can welcome all of the the Gen Y um, Gen Yers to <laughs> to, to hear, and you know, please stick around and become a dystopian uh, when you're listening to us. Uh, but it was an absolute just disaster. <laughs> you know, I think yes. I've, I've spoken to a couple of other people who do podcasts, and everybody's been through this at some point where either the audio didn't record, it's got corrupted, or whatever the hell happened to us, and it's just one of those things. But here we are, and anyway, we've got a story for you today. So, Linz, what yes, annoys Chris. you the most in your everyday life? In it, my everyday... Oh, God. Yeah, this, I, um, I mean mundane things like like admin, like filing taxes or paying your bills or dealing with, like, noise or something like that. Oh, God. Noise is uh, the top one. But also, one thing that's, that's, like, annoyed me recently is being on hold to companies who haven't paid me money back and then them <sighs> just hanging up the call after about half an hour and me just going... Okay, that's probably the most annoying thing as of recently. I'm if not, you're talking about mundane things. I'm not sure what's annoying, more annoying, that or like getting to like the front of the queue and then someone's like, oh no, you don't need to call me, you need to call this other number. And then... <laughs> the infinite loop. <laughs> you call that other number and it's like, hi, you're number 12,000 in the queue. Giving me PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> uh, for me, it's, uh, it's definitely noise. There's nothing worse yeah. than hearing other people's music. And it's just one of those things that everyday life, though, you know, like shit happens. If you get a parking ticket or a traffic citation or hell, even uh, a fine for skipping the subway fare. I mean, you got to pay it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I suppose. Well, maybe some take revenge. Ooh. Petty Revenge is the domain of the Seriously Sinister podcast, who I won't steal their thunder from, but I would recommend you go and listen to them as well. But a fairly common petty way of getting revenge includes paying parking tickets in pennies. And I think everybody's heard of that old chestnut. Oh, I've seen so many good videos of people paying in pennies. (laughs) The file that I found in the archives today is actually the file of Marvin Hemeyer, and his feud with the government, which went to Mad Max levels of insane. <laughs> yes. So let's, let's paint the picture. Marvin was born in 1951 in South Dakota, which is just south of North Dakota. He served in the US Air Force, where he learned how to weld, and for a portion of the time was stationed in Colorado. In 1991, he decided to move and to make his home in Colorado, and specifically the small town of Granby, in the shadow of the Rocky Mountain National Park. Now, Granby is a small, sleepy little slice of Americana, with a population of 2,079 in 2020. It's a a big place. (laughs) 
everything. It's all happening there, Chris. Well, it is the type of place where everybody knows everybody, and which is good for Marvin. He had no family, friends, or any real links to the area. He decided to move there, and he purchased a parcel of land the size of two acres in 1992 for the princely sum of $42,000. Couldn't get anything for that now. No, that is like half a deposit right now. (laughs) Marvin built a welding shop on this land, and on there he operated a muffler repair shop. Now, a muffler, for the motorphobic like myself, is a sound-deadening device... I love the way you've had to explain what a muffler is, Chris. (laughs) Well, there's an important definition, because it could be, it could be a sound-deadening device that reduces the noise made by an exhaust on a motor vehicle. Or it could also be a wad of toilet paper that an exceptionally heavy pro wrestler jams in their butt crack to prevent butt sweat stains from appearing on their gear and the audience from hearing any flatulence. (laughs) Is that a real thing? It is a real thing. By the way, any new listeners, Chris will shoehorn a wrestling reference in wherever he can, in every episode. He can't get away with, like, not doing one. Guilty (laughs) as charged. Um, However, uh, Marvin didn't repair sweaty butt crack. What he did was he repaired mufflers on cards. And by all accounts, Marvin Heermeyer was a master welder. And he was extremely good at his craft. And by his own admission, the businesses he owned was a successful one. Now, he was an avid snowmobile rider and was at the point in our story where he was essentially running a business part-time in order to fund his snowmobile habit. Now, for 10 years, Marvin operated his repair shop. And at first, he was a friendly and hardworking member of this small Colorado town. His brother described him as somebody who would bend over backwards for anyone, although that's clearly a biased point of view from a family member. But, yeah, I was going to say, if that was the case, I feel like we wouldn't be doing an episode on him right now. <laughs> well, that's the end of our story today. A lovely man who would do anything for anybody. Okay, next. <laughs> One account from a local resident, uh, Christine Baker, though, claimed that Marvin uh, actually threatened her husband over a payment dispute. And this was later had to be settled via an intermediary. So mm, a bit of a, a mixed picture here. A guy who will do anything for anybody, but also will threaten you and, uh, you know, demand his money. I'm getting like fallen down vibes, you know, that movie. (laughs) Yeah, he's just like an office worker who loses his marbles. Like he is a nice man until something doesn't go right. (laughs) So Marvin had purchased the land that I referenced a little bit earlier uh, via the Resolution Trust Corporation. And this was a US government owned asset management company. And essentially what they did was liquidize assets from anyone who had defaulted on payments and then sold them on for cheaper prices to benefit the government. And one of these principal assets that they sold was land. And this is how Marvin purchased that large plot of land that he built upon for such a cheap price. And that that was a cheap price even in 1992. Yeah. Now, he actually owned this land outright and he owned it after winning an auction which was held for the land. Hemeyer claims that Cody Dotchev, who was a local businessman, wanted that land himself to build a concrete factory. And after the auction, Dotchev approached him and cursed him out for winning that bidding. Rude. Well, if it Should happened. Should have bid more. Um, now, Dotchev is undoubtedly a prickly character, 
Nobody takes issue with that, but absolutely nobody corroborates Marvin's versions of events. Regardless, oh, they're saying he made it up. That that never happened. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, okay. This seems to be in the inception, in Marvin's mind at least, of their rivalry, and also a rivalry with the town that he viewed as corrupt and an old boys' club centering around the Thompson family. And the Thompson family owned much of the land in Granby, and Marvin became increasingly bitter over time, feeling the governmental red tape was too much to bear. So I'll, I'll get into this a bit now. But before I do, Lynn, what's your thoughts on this so far? We've got a guy who's bought some land, is supposedly entering into a feud with a local concrete merchant for no apparent reason. Um, I feel like, would he bother making that up? I mean, I get what you mean. Like, he's moved to this small town. He doesn't know anybody. It's quite weird to me that he just decided, yeah, I'll move there. Like, he has no connections to it. And then he gets there and, like, I want to say that he's, like, paranoid or something. Because, obviously, I feel like this story's going to go ham in the other direction here. But um, I, I feel like you do get that kind of thing in small towns where, like, you know, a family might have a monopoly over, like, all the businesses and stuff. And they might not want you encroaching on their territory or earnings, but... The fact that people said that he just made up that whole part about having a little dispute after winning the auction is kind of strange. It is. Yeah, I'm interested to see where it's going. (laughs) Just you, wait. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know it's going to be something insane because you're telling me the story, so... (laughs) I mean, I I think just to answer your question, I think the reason why he moved to the town was for the snowmobiling. I think oh, that's, like he loved it that much. I like, think so. I think he, okay. he was he was stationed in Colorado when he was in the army, although not in this town. Got into snowmobiling and then wanted a place where he could go snowmobiling easily. And this is one of those towns. All right. So let, let's see where it goes. So in 1998, the land directly adjacent to Hemai's land was spot zoned by the town zoning committee as a site for Cody Dotjeff's concrete factory. Marvin and local residents were up in arms about the noise and the dust that would be created by the plant, let alone the fact that it would block most of the access to Marv's shop. Oh, that is so annoying, honestly. I mean, that's that's a legitimate gripe to have. Uh, Especially and- if you hate the other person and they're right <laughs> next door to you just being like, woohoo, doing my concrete. <laughs> I mean, I think pretty much that's what Cody kind of did. He was like, okay, well, if I can't have that bit of land, I guess I'll just buy the bit of land next to you. That is so petty. Like, Mm. honestly, now I'm starting to feel like him, like, berating... What's his name? Marv. Marv. Him berating Marv after the auction could be true, because this is some petty stuff. Oh, it's going to get more petty, don't worry. (laughs) I know it is. (laughs) So the sewer board, which notably included some of the members of the Thompson family insisted almost immediately from when the land was purchased that Marv connect his land to the sewer main. This seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. The problem was that this would cost Marv upwards of 80,000 US dollars to do this, and he was not prepared to do that. Oh my God, that's like double what he paid for the land. Now, the other problem is that he put this off for so long that at the point where they were saying you have to do this you literally have to do this by law the closest connection to the sewer line was right through cody dotchev's land of course it is of course it is the city over the years 
began to rain fines and sanctions down on Marv with increasing intensity, and he responded by suing the town. <laughs> the town and Dotchev got together and said, look, we, need, we needed to stop this with, with Marv. So Dotchev offered Marv a way out. He would offer him an easement on the sewer line, i.e. all parties would allow Marv to build a sewer line through land that was not his own as long as he paid for it himself. Marv refused and continued <laughs> with his lawsuit. And he went all the way to the top, only yes. to lose and be told that oh, he, no. <laughs> he just had to connect to the damn sewer line like everybody Marv. else in the United States of America. <laughs> now, one thing to note here, it is actually estimated by this point in his lawsuit, he had put more than $80,000 into fighting the case. I was just about to say, how much is it to sue a town? Surely it's over $80,000. It's quite a lot of money. It's quite yeah. a lot of money. This is really petty. Now, Cody Dotchev had been offering, almost since the beginning, to buy Marv out of that land. Marv decided, after losing the case, that he would ask for a cool quarter of a million dollars or six times what Marvin paid for the land originally. A good deal, right? Yeah. Dot Jeff agreed. Oh, okay. And he said, yeah, okay, fair enough, right, sweet, we got this done. He really hates Marv. Yeah. <laughs> and Himaya then went, uh, no, changed his mind and upped the asking price to $375,000. Oh, okay. Um... Dot Jeff said, okay, let's just get this done. Oh, all right. This, mm -hmm. I didn't expect that at all. No, no, you didn't. <laughs> and this is maybe painting a picture of it that um, Dotchev might not be quite as unreasonable as you think uh, yeah. here. Marv then turned around, presumably much like Dr. Evil, and demanded $1 million. <laughs> uh, at which point, Cody Dotchev went, I'm out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this guy's really taking the piss now. <laughs> now, everything went silent on the sale of the land. Until from 2002 through 2003. So bear in mind that he bought this land in 92. So this has been going on for the better part of 11 years at this point. He must be so tired. You know when you hold like a little grudge against somebody? It's like that times 100. Yeah, it wears you out. It, I would take a, like, a, I would take like, what was it? 370,000? Yeah. I would take that and be like, right, I'm going to go buy some land somewhere else. See you later. Whatever. Some, that, there's other places you can snowmobile in the US, I'm sure. Oh, 100%. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, to be fair, if anybody wants to donate us $375,000, you can just go to our tip jar, uh, which you can find <laughs> on our link tree in the Instagram profile. And you can nice. feel free to, you know, do that or just the price of a coffee in your country, whichever, you know, simple. <laughs> nice, Chris. Nice. So eventually in 2003, Marv closed his muffler shop. And he auctioned off nearly everything, left with pretty much only his land and the buildings that sat on it. He was approached by Travis Boosie of the Granby Trash Company to use the land and the buildings to store their trucks close to the town. Through the negotiations, Boosie eventually moved on from looking to lease the land and eventually made an offer of $400,000. Marv accepted and Travis purchased the land from him. Marv just had one condition, that he was allowed to lease back one small building on the land in which he could work on his projects, presumably snowmobile modifications. Suppose I was about to say, mm. um, 
His projects. I feel like this would be like a man who had very strange projects at this point. Mm. That that may involve his uh, his rival. <laughs> well, he, he he was known in the town as the snowmobile man. They said, <laughs> starting to get that picture. Yeah, they, <laughs> there was a group of them that went out snowmobiling, and you know he had pretty much customized every single snowmobile as snowmobile to be you know more suitable. Give them fenders and things like that, so they could oh, you know cool, brush away trees. And you know he was seen. He was like you know if you if you want to get into snowmobiling, go see Marv. He'll sort you out. That's cool, though. So he did yeah. have, like, some connections to that town and people did like him. And oh, event, a... eventually. I mean, you know, yeah. he, he was in a relationship with a woman in the town. Ooh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh He had friends. He had a group of people he would go out with. He had a successful business. He, he might have gone there with nothing, but by this yeah. point in the story, on the surface, he's, he's got everything that one might think you would need. Exactly. And, and like so far, he's just got like, you know, a small, you know, issue with another guy in town, mm. a little bit of a grudge, which, you know, it's not, some no, people do have. It's not an unusual thing in a small town yeah. or hell in a big town. Yeah. Now, one small note on the fact that the land was purchased by Travis, supposedly the next day it was hooked up to the sewerage system. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see how much effort they were going to have to go to on this in reality. Mm-hmm. Now, Linz, so far we have talked about a lot of red tape and a man who feels that he's been very wronged by the town. Still, yes. still, he's come out richer than he started this ordeal. So does it surprise you to find out that what happened next was that Marv moved to Alaska, where he could go snowmobiling year round? I was going to suggest he moved to Alaska. I mean, <laughs> it's a shame that you weren't around because that's exactly what he didn't do. Damn it. <laughs> I was going to say, move to Alaska, no people, no problems, probably don't care about your sewer lines, and snowmobiling. Yeah. Okay, so Marv didn't do what no. we probably all thought that he should. No. Oh God, what did you do? Marv, what any, did you do? Any guesses? <laughs> any guesses? Um, I feel like he set fire to his rival's concrete factory or something. <laughs> I don't know. I know it's going to be something more mental than that, because we're talking about it, like I said, but... Please tell me, Chris, regale me. What did Marv do? (laughs) Marv retreated into his small building. He literally moved in there. Bed, TV, food, everything you could need. And he began to get to work. A couple of years prior, he and Maya had purchased a Komatsu D355A bulldozer, And he began modifying it. Oh my god. You're kidding me. Why do I feel like this is going to be a death machine or something? He welded two layers of half-inch steel onto the carriage with spaces in between. He filled those spaces with concrete. And he, he didn't get the concrete from his rival, did he? I really hope he did. I couldn't find <laughs> this information out, but I was really hoping he was just going and like nicking bits off the side of the, the concrete. It sounds like factory. he has. It sounds like he did. Oh God. Okay. Okay. Steel, concrete, right? And with this, he created his own do-it-yourself military armored car. Oh my God. In some places <laughs> on the bulldozer, the armor was over a foot He wired up cameras to the outside of the vehicle, complete with compressed air. 
to clean the screens of any obstructions, and this is how he would pilot the vehicle. What do you, he would pilot? Mm. Oh, via so the he, cameras. He couldn't see out, but he had completely encased this thing in cement and steel. So the only way to pilot it was via CCTV cameras. That is insane. Mm. That's like a video game. Exactly. For real. Oh my god, that's terrible. Well, I mean, he but he he really thought this out. I mean, I mentioned the compressed air there. So essentially, he's thinking. I'm not going to spoil where this is going, but at some point, those cameras might get blocked. They, you know, they might get uh, debris of some kind on them. So he had compressed air just beneath the camera to essentially be a windscreen wiper and blow away the the debris from the screen. Now that is a lot of premeditation, my god. I... So he also fitted the behemoth with several holes in the armor, just wide enough for the barrel of a rifle. And they were fitted on each side of the device with giant sniper rifles. He began methodically transferring all of his assets to his father's name in order to give it to other members of his family. He really had everything covered, didn't he? Yeah, I, he's going to do something. Well, obviously he's doing something crazy. He's got peepholes of destruction with rifles poking through them. Basically an armored tank. <laughs> that, <laughs> that sounds like a fucking mashup of Megadeth songs. Peepholes People of destruction. Of destruction. <laughs> <laughs> do you think he was playing some Megadeth or some Slayer in there? Almost certainly. He you got to pump yourself up. Like, I'd love to know what he was listening to. I, I, I guess he's going to go on a rampage and... Um, Get his get his rival. I don't know why he need an armored tank. Oh god, he's gonna he's gonna destroy everything, isn't he? <laughs> he's gonna destroy everything. <laughs> I was like, why would he need that just to kill his neighbor at the concrete factory? Then I was mm. like, oh my god, he's going to war. He's literally going to war. So he was at this point penniless, and he sat down to record his thoughts on audio tape for two hours, forty-two minutes, and fifty seconds. In these tapes, Marv is bitter, angry, and just frustrated at the town. And he truly believes that he has been the victim of an old boys club conspiracy. He also believes that he is a true patriot and that God has put him on earth to get even with them. Oh my gosh. Is he suffering from some kind of delusions at this point? Or did he have a history of, like... Mm, not that I could find any information on. I mean, he's clearly not, you know... He can't be in your right mind if you're yeah. doing this, is what you're trying to say. Yeah, pr- pr- um, pr- pretty much, but there also doesn't... He doesn't seem to have had any hallucinations or visions. He just believes that he's been put here for one purpose and he's given God every opportunity to not have him do this. Yeah, it's like a conspiracy theorist who's like, okay, God, give me a sign if this isn't the right thing to do. And then, like, lightning strikes the tree and he's like, okay, I guess I'll just go ahead and do it. (laughs) Now, if you fancy some truly easy listening, all of those two hours, 42 minutes and 50 seconds of Marv's tape are freely available online. And they are quite a fascinating listen. Um, I wouldn't put it on as a bedtime story for your child, but do give them a go. (laughs) On June 4th, 2004, Marv revved up the dozer and he pushed the accelerator forward, bursting out of the garage and made a beeline for the concrete plant that he viewed as the ignition source for all his pain. Oh God, please tell me the guy wasn't in there. 
he plowed straight into the side of this massive building and levelled a huge section of it. He then moved to the next part and the next part and the next part, using the giant bucket on the front of the bulldozer to shred through brick and mortar like a hot knife through butter. Mouths agasp, the employees could not believe what they were seeing. Jeez, it is armoured tank that probably looked something like his customised snowmobiles. They probably knew who it was on site. Well, Cody Dolchev knew who it was straight away. Yeah. What did he do? He reached straight for his six-shooter and began laying bullets into the bulldozer. (laughs) You're kidding, this is like a movie. Unfortunately, not a scratch was made on the bulldozer, and employees tried to throw debris and metal poles, bits of concrete, anything they could into the treads to try and stop the bulldozer from moving, all to no effect. In a scene reminiscent of, you know, that bit in Aliens where Ripley gets into the mech suit to fight the alien queen, Cody Dotchev re-emerged in his own bulldozer, shouting, Get off her, you bitch! And locked (laughs) horns with Marv. He was trying to... (laughs) Sorry. Stick with me, stick with me here. He locked buckets with Marv, and he was trying to flip Marv's bulldozer in order to put an end to this rampage. But after being shot at by Marv, the bulldozer crashed and he was knocked unconscious. Now, Cody later made a full recovery, but he was out of it at this point. Around this time, police arrived at the scene and could not work out who was driving or how they were driving. There seemed to be just completely solid walls on all sides of this and they at this point did not realize that there was cameras on the outside which were quite small which were directing the machine. Satisfied with his carnage that he'd inflicted on a concrete plant, Marv began to head towards the town and he had a long list of people to get even with. Oh god you're kidding. Police rode alongside him and even clambered on top of the vehicle but could not find any access point whatsoever to get into the cabin. All the while, Marv was inside, disconnected from the reality of the destruction outside, watching events unfold on monitors, as you mentioned before, like he was playing a video game. First, he hit the electric store, where one of the town board members worked. Then, he veered towards the town hall, a site of great pain for Marv, where most of his judgments had been cast against him. Children were inside the building until mere moments before. They were in the town library, and they just managed to escape before Marv's bulldozer burst through the side of the town hall. Oh God, he really lost it, didn't he? He spent, at this time, a good deal of time levelling a bigger and bigger hole in the town hall. Until he got bored, and then he turned his attention to the house of the former mayor of the town. Or rather... His widow's home. What? Just completely leveled it, just to get even with the widow, somebody who didn't do him any wrong, but he felt her husband did. Oh, Jesus. His next victim was the local paper, who he felt had done him wrong in repeatedly not running a story about his shop. In an aside, <laughs> uh, the, the, the newspaper actually had visited his shop multiple times, each time finding it closed because he'd gone snowmobiling. <laughs> 
So I know it's not funny, but it's just the way you put it. Like, why didn't you run a story on me? And he's just like cut scene to him just going like, woo. Whee! Well, he really honestly believed everyone had it into yeah. him, almost to like a conspiracy theory level. Yeah, and that, that's what this is. I mean, the newspaper even yeah. gave him a free advertisement for his business in the paper to make up for the fact that they could never get a hold of him to run a story that he wanted to have in the paper anyway. Yeah, like that's really nice, but it obviously like wasn't good enough. He still believed like that he deserved more. Mm. It was entitled to more and he didn't get it. Like, it's so strange how he just automatically assumed, like, oh, they're all against me. That's some kind of paranoid behavior. It has to mm-hmm. be. Well, he trashed the front of the building and opened fire on people in the vicinity. Now, at this point, the entourage following Marv was quite sizable. Police escorts were powerless to stop him, and all they could do was manage the area surrounding his destruction. Their weapons were impervious against the DIY'd armoured bulldozer. The police emptied over 200 rounds into the bulldozer, all to no effect. Police put out a warning to the Thompson family. They had, at this time, worked out that it was Marv, and knew that the Thompson family would be on Marv's list. And sure enough, mere minutes after that, the matriarch of the Thompson family evacuated her house, and just a few moments after that, the bulldozer had raised her house to the ground, leaving only beams and broken glass. How big is this thing? The uh, the bulldozer? Yeah. It's it's a big bulldozer. It's, I mean... <laughs> is it fast? Like, no, he... no, it's not oh, particularly okay, fast. So it's so... really slowly approaching these places from like a big, looming, sinister tank-like yeah. thing. I mean, it's That's not... horrible. It's not slow, but it's sort of... It's at the, uh, the speed that police were walking alongside it oh so it, it yeah it, it's kind of slow like yeah. i didn't imagine it would be fast but like i don't know why they were trying to stop it with bullets i feel like i think they were probably just desperate yeah, at this exactly. time i mean like remember that this is a sleepy town i mean uh, it's probably rare that there's serious crime definitely <laughs> they've never rare that a man arms <laughs> a bulldozer was <laughs> the downtown it does depend where you live but <laughs> in this town, it was a rarity, and I think they just thought, a pew-pew? <laughs> Next on his list, we had the Thompson's businesses, and he just rolled on over across the road and just, just went through multiple Thompson assets on the way to their vehicle depot, which he caused irreparable damage to. Marv eventually made his way towards the gas works, where stood rows and rows and rows of propane tanks. Oh, Lord. Marv began to fire incendiary rounds from his rifle, trying to ignite one of the tanks, which would cause a chain reaction, and, if he'd been successful, would have levelled a huge portion of the town within the blast zone. Unfortunately for Marv, the bucket of the bulldozer, after all of his destruction, had become more or less stuck in place, and Marv could not get a shot off at an angle that would hit a propane tank. Thank God for that. God, imagine. After some time, he gave up and began heading back into town, where he then encountered several scrapers. Uh, Scrapers are basically giant bulldozers, and they are designed to scoop out huge chunks of earth at the time. So when you need to, you uh, you know, lay foundations, you need to clear 
the, 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 the dirt out of the way of quite a large thing for like a shopping mall or something like that, you use a scraper. So he encountered two of these that had been deployed by some uh, some people of goodwill in the town to try and stop him. They were absolutely no match for Marv, who in his incredibly heavy bulldozer could not be moved and simply pushed these two scrapers out of the way with extreme ease. At this point, the state had been alerted and the governor, Bill Owens, reportedly considered authorising the National Guard to use an Apache attack helicopter or a two-man team to launch an anti-tank javelin missile at Marv in an attempt to stop the rampage. Ultimately, it was decided quite quickly that a missile strike on US soil was probably not the best move in a residential neighbourhood. I was about to say, Mm. this town is probably going like, what the hell is happening? And besides, at this point, Marv was running into some issues. All of this work was coming at a cost and the engine of a bulldozer was under tremendous stress and it began to overheat as he ripped into the Gambles store, which was run by another town council member. Losing power first, Marth was helpless when one of his treads got stuck in the basement of the Gambles store and suddenly, for the first time in several hours in the town, everything went quiet. Police pulled back to await Marv's next move. They expected the worst, and at this point they were thinking that a heavily armed domestic terrorist was going to pop out, covered in armour, and begin taking the fight on foot. But instead, a single gunshot rang out. Oh, that's kind of what what I was expecting to happen. Like, yeah, there's no... Like, he, he walled himself in. It's basically a big armoured tomb at this point. Hmm. Marv took his own life with a three fifty seven handgun after making his point on the town. SWAT teams finally showed up and attached several explosives to the side of the vehicle, which had no effect whatsoever. Wow, really? Mm, it's amazing. You just taught everybody how to make an armoured tank, Chris. Please, please don't. Yeah, please don't do that. It's really interesting. Like but, you, wow, use, that... you can make you can make like concrete, like, you know. Uh, planters and stuff, man. Like, much nicer stuff out of concrete than, like, this death machine. Why not a plant pot? (laughs) So it took them until the next day, until they were able to gain access to the vehicle. And they did this by cutting a hole with blowtorches in an exhaust fan. Inside, they found Marv dead at the controls. Oh, poor Marv. I actually feel kind of bad. Like, I know he did some horrific things, but I feel really bad for him. Hmm. All in all, the total damage caused was over $7 million. And Marv, in one last act of revenge that we referenced earlier, had given away all of his assets, so almost nothing could be recouped from his estate. Yeah, he he knew that was going to happen, though. Well, that's why he'd given the money from the sale of his property to his now-deceased father, who'd given it to his wider family and just putting as much distance as possible, in the paper trail for the cash. The town looked like a war zone on the 5th of June, with buildings destroyed and helicopters circling the area. This was not something you were expecting to see on US soil. Despite the fact that the event is often known as Killdozer, ultimately the only victim of the rampage was Marv himself. Now some hold him up as an American hero, pushed too far by the city hall 
and taking matters into his own hands. Online, you can find countless people taking Marv's side and making him into oh. a martyr or a Marva. And <laughs> Chris, <laughs> come I, on. I'm willing to bet that at least somebody comments on, on our post uh, about this episode that he was. And if that's your opinion, that's fine. It's certain that the only reason that nobody died was sheer blind luck. Oh. Yeah, I was about to say, it's it's great that nobody died, and that's probably why people feel comfortable, like, saying he's some kind of folk hero, you mm. know, like, against the man or whatever, but I mean, it I, would have been a lot different if those kids hadn't have evacuated the building. Exactly. He, yeah, that would have been a different story. I mean, perhaps the god that Mar felt had commanded him to take revenge was actually looking out for the other townsfolk that day. Remember, if Marv had let off just one of those incendiary rounds and it had managed to hit one of the propane tanks, it would have caused a fireball and a chain reaction and it would have killed hundreds at the very least. Yeah, and that was his goal. So Now in one last pang of irony, Marvin Hemeyer's rampage made international news for a day. Oh. As the very next day, former US President Ronald Reagan died and all of the media coverage shifted away. Now, what happened to the bulldozer, I hear you ask? What happened to the bulldozer, Chris? I thought I heard you say that. So <laughs> it was um, it was scrapped by the town and it was the, uh, the, the metal from it was scrapped to as many different scrapyards as humanly possible in order to prevent souvenir hunters. Oh, so it was like literally. Oh yeah, I never considered that, that people would want a piece of the killdozer. It was literally like cast to the, like the edges of the Seven Kingdoms to like stop yeah, like people doing this. Yeah, <laughs> Several residents, including the Thompsons, interestingly, feel that this was actually a mistake. And what they should have done was opened a town museum, of which the centrepiece would have been the killdozer, and charged money to recoup some of the $7 million of damage that had been caused to the town, which is an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like, nobody died and they survived. Maybe they felt like it was a win. And I guess... Yeah, people probably would have come to see it because if they're going to hunt scraps of the killdozer, they'll definitely, there's people out there who probably would want to see it in real life. I mean, people go to all sorts of, um, like, strange crime, true crime sites and, like, I don't know, what do they call it? Like, dark tourism or something. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly dark tourism. And So, Linz, what do you think about this? Before we kind of wrap this up here what do you think about Marvin's story well I mean I would like to listen to his um audio and everything and maybe read a few articles before I like formed any kind of opinion on it but from what you've told me it seems like a man who felt I think he had like like I said at the beginning like that uh, movie falling down it kind of reminds me of that like Somebody who's just going about their regular life in a small town and then a series of small things happen and it kind of snowballs and they, I don't know, just go mental, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I can't imagine. Okay, fair enough, you've got a grudge. And, and then I suppose once that grudge is formed, any small rational thing that those people ask of you, maybe you'd start to feel like, are they just doing this to, like, make my life harder? You know, like, the sewage thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense. It's something everybody has to do. But he was, like, 
that's double the value of my property and they just want to do it to get back at me or something. He started to sort of feel persecuted. Like otherwise people would have been like, yeah, that's normal. Yeah. I guess I do have to do that. He kind of turned it, he looked at it through a different lens, you know, as if he was being attacked by everybody, mm. which makes me wonder if he had some kind of issues, you know. But not that it's an excuse, but maybe it's a reason. Yeah, you know? I mean, everybody's the main character of their own story, right? And yeah. it's it's easy to put these things together and think there's a conspiracy against you. And perhaps there were things that were done to him because he was either an outsider or being uh, just general annoyance. Yeah, but I don't I mean, think it went to this quite level of like all the way to the president that he seems to think. It <laughs> yeah, did. that that reminds me of a you know like a whole conspiracy theorist thing. A certain group that I don't want to mention. Mm. You know, what I'm talking about. Oh but, yeah, um, yeah. It reminds me of that. You know, just like when you when someone starts to believe something like that so hard, it's kind of hard for them to reverse and and you know like um, rationalize with themselves and go maybe it isn't that maybe I. Some things I'm supposed to do and other things. Yeah, I guess the guy putting his concrete factory next door was kind of... I do think that was pretty annoying, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I mean, there is towns like that where a family kind of, you know, runs it, if you will. And maybe they don't like outsiders. I don't know. But I'm, you know, like you said, it's not like going all the way to the top of this conspiracy theory and then... The fact that God knows how long he sat and designed that that killdozer. Mm. You know, I mean, like you said. He, he was doing, the, um, he was planning this for years and years. Definitely. He was getting more and more wound up. And at no point did he say to himself, this is madness. I might just move. <laughs> he just, and like he dedicated his life to it. Like he actually knew he was going to, you know, end his life at the end of it. Yeah. I mean, he knew, I mean, supposedly what the the authorities believe is that he used a, a crane to lower the final part of the carriage down. So there was no getting out. How did he do that? He had it all automated and set up, I believe. My God, like that is... I would never be able to think of something like that. Like, I don't think many people would. Like, um, oh, I'll get a crane, I'll seal myself in. and And it worked. The only thing that like ruined mm. it was that his engine burned out and he couldn't, you know, his um, bucket got stuck. I mean, you, the thing is, he was he, he, he was expecting this. He knew that it was going to run at some point. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, imagine if you just took a regular car and then placed like eight other cars on top of it. It would, yeah. it would only run for so far, probably to the end of the road, before you started yeah. running into more problems. But... Uh, one thing I would really recommend to both yourself and to the audience as well is there is a really good documentary about this called Tread. Um, you can find it quite easily online and it is really good. It's got interviews with all of the major players, including Marv, because it uses a lot of his diaries as, ah, you know, his diaries. his okay. side, well, his recorded diaries, you know, what I referenced ah, earlier. Audio. Oh, yeah. okay. I really, I really, really want to listen to those, actually. Yeah. So I you want get, to hear from the horse's mouth. You get both sides of the story on this. Um, it's It definitely comes down on the same side that we're coming down, the documentary. All documentaries are biased, which is coming down that, you know, Marv took it too far and was in the wrong. Um, <laughs> definitely took mm-hmm. it too far. <laughs> no one's doubting that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, any last thoughts before we wrap today's episode up, Linz? No, but that's an amazing story. I've never heard of it before. I re- I'm really interested to check out Tread and his uh, 
audio journals. And yeah, thanks for sharing this with us, Chris. No, it's my pleasure. So thank you very much, everybody, for jo- uh, joining us today on Dystopian Simulation Radio. Linz, where can they find us? You can find us at d.s.radio on Instagram, and we have a link tree in our bio, and that'll take you to everything else that you need to know about in the dystopian simulation. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. One thing that I would really like to ask everybody to do, if you're listening to this and you've enjoyed today's episode, is please rate us five stars on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you're listening to it, if it has a rating system. It just really helps the algorithm and it helps more people listen. And as a growing podcast, we would really, really appreciate that. Yes, and we hope that the quality of this episode is okay. Like we said, it's the first time we're recording online. And uh, yeah, we couldn't help the events that led us here. Like nope. uh, the case of the missing Mac files. That could be an episode in itself, Chris. Or Also <laughs> the fact that uh, in the middle of this episode, there was a power cut. Yeah. It's cursed. It's definitely cursed. <laughs> well, let's but, um, let's draw this to a close before. What, yeah, before anything else happens. Before like, the monkey's the paw creeping in. <laughs> so the monkey's paw uncurls just one more finger. <laughs> See right. you, everybody. Thanks Bye. Thanks so much for telling us the story and goodbye. Bye, Bye everybody. Hey everybody, quick update from me. The rest of this episode won't be edited to quite the same level because my wife's waters have just burst. So I'm going to go to the hospital now. Join us next time.